Hello, it's Kevin Bay. Welcome to the still tentatively named That's All I Got podcast. I plan on changing it. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do, but that's what it is for now, so let's just all live with it and pretend it's good. This is episode number 10, so uh, two and a half months that I've been talking. I, I can't even believe it's episode 10. I don't know how people do this over thousands of episodes, like the No Agenda Show, or even hundreds of episodes, because that's a couple of years. But anyway, that's where I'm at. Happy to be here. I'm also doing this live on YouTube. Well, we'll see how that's going to go, live streaming that one. So that one, you'll be able to hear all the crazy noises that might pop up. Uh, you know what? I should transition. Let's see. When that not transition, it, that, that leads me to the first story, but uh, not transition in a way that, uh, that most people transition in the modern world. Uh, I think I need to take a swig of coffee before I start this one because I ran across this story yesterday and it's, if it's true, if this isn't a massive trolling, uh, we've finally gone too far in this world. So let me get to it here. It's a tweet. I got to put on my glasses for this asshole. Oh shit, I put my headphones on first. Okay, headphones off. Glasses on. Okay, headphones back on. There we go. Now I can read things. All right. Uh, okay. An asshole from uh, the UK, British asshole Ollie London, has um, transitioned. What's he transitioned to? He hasn't done the popular one of uh, male transitioning to female or female transitioning to male. No. He's decided to transition to being Korean. Or anyone online as British, because I, I identify as Korean. That's just my culture. That's my home country. Let me, that's let's exactly how I look see now. This dick. Um, there he is. And I also identify as Jimin. That's my Korean name. But uh, not only that, I just I know it's a little bit confusing for some people. Nobody's ever come out as Jimin or Korean. But um, <laughs> this is something that you guys know. This has to be a massive trolling. Eight years, I've really struggled with identity issues, with who I am. You know, or anyone online as British, because I... Whatever. I cannot... I mean, did he really get plastic surgery for this? Or did he just tape his eyeballs back like they like they used to in the old Charlie Chan movies when... Uh, uh, what the hell was his name? He was a Jewish man that played Charlie Chan. Uh was one of my father's favorite... Charlie... I can't spell. Okay, hit the wrong stupid button. There we go. I'm a little bit off off my usual sharpness of the first nine episodes because I'm doing this on video and live on YouTube with uh, uh, zero viewers. Well, there's one. There's me. <clears throat> Excuse me as I'm watching this happen. Anyway... Uh, Charlie Chan movies. I think it's Sidney, Sidney Toller. What was his name? 
I don't have a chat room. I don't have anything here to uh, to help me out here. I think I have some of them. Uh, all right. Where the f fuck is his name? Here we go. Sydney. Yeah, Sydney Toller. Um, where in the movies they were just kind of. He was a white man that taped his eyeballs back. The movies. I love the movies. The movies were great. And my father. Um, yeah, I'm half Korean. My father used to love to refer to his children as my number one son, number two son. But he wasn't like Charlie Chan where he had. I don't know how many kids Charlie Chan had in the movies. But. Um, my, you know, at the time it was just me and my older brother, so there were just two of us. So he would have to stop at number two, son. And then he uh, um, got remarried, had two other children, so at least he could go through the process of saying number three, son. And I, I don't think he ever referred to our sister as number four daughter. I don't know. Um, but anyway, back to uh, Ollie London. If if this is true. Are we accepting this stuff as transitioning finally jumped the shark? Can you just claim to be Asian or Korean in this case, where that's now his culture, which it's obviously not his culture? I'm half Korean, and it's barely my culture. Anyway, that one just pissed me off, or... It made me laugh because I can't figure out if it's real or not. So uh, this new setup here. Oh, yeah, there's the the uh, blog post. Oh, it's uncategorized. God damn it. You know? Okay. So I've I've set this new thing up where, you know, I, I don't subscribe and I don't uh, pay too close attention, although I, I do... Uh, get some information from Tim Pool, uh, from his YouTube channel. I don't really watch the videos, per se, um, because he's, he's, he's a millennial. He's younger than I am, obviously. I'm in my 50s. I'm Gen X. So I like getting points of view from younger people so I can see, you know, because they'll, they'll look at things that are not important to me. They'll look at whatever's important to them. So, you know, as I'm looking through and I, I see his, his setup... Uh, you know, it's kind of cool. He's got that little picture-in-picture -picture thing there. So I thought, how can I do this for myself? So I found some software that will run off of my uh, Logitech webcam, and it'll actually work on multiple devices as well. I can put it on my laptop, on my Surface Go. I could put it on my phone and have... I could actually uh, have a multiple camera shoot within my office here. Um, welcome to my office, by the way. That is my kids in over uh, my right shoulder... On the left of the screen, I think it's showing, is my, uh, you can see the bottom corner of my Batman Beyond WB poster. I used to be in television, and we launched a WB affiliate in Iowa City, and that is one of the first posters I got. Uh, big fan of Batman Beyond. They need to make a live action show of that one. Down in the lower corner, you see this interesting office setup I have here. Um, one of my dog's beds. You know, maybe at some point I'll dress this up and show something nice, but 
And then uh, you got the, this beautiful garbage can over here just behind me. A couple of my backpacks, one that I use for hiking, one I use for travel. And I'm not even sure. What else can you see back here? Uh, let me cut to the big version so I can see it. Uh, you got my cup of coffee. Hello. Above me. Over there. Back there is a drawing that my daughter had. This is my back over here. This is my... Uh, magna cum laude metal. I didn't, I didn't even know they gave medals back then for this kind of stuff, but I graduated with honors from Northeastern Illinois University. Very prestigious. Uh, I have a degree in computer science with a minor in business law. And the business law actually did me some good. Computer science, you know, I've always been interested in computers and software and, uh, I learned to code at like 14. I was terrible at it, and I was horrible at it when I went to college as well. I received straight A's in business law, business law, mathematics, all that kind of stuff, but computer science, oh my God. I can I can make al algorithms, but I cannot um, code to save my life. I don't know if you can hear my wife in the background. She's talking to somebody. Filipinos talk loud. They are very, very loud people. I've been married for over 30 years, so I can say that unequivocally, that Filipinos are loud. Anyway, uh, I can probably remove that in post for the podcast, but for the video, it's live and it's just going to be there. So I don't have a built-in noise gate, a hardware noise gate for my microphone and my, my podcast setup, uh, which here, this is my podcast setup. It's a PodTrack P4. Can you see this? Okay. Uh, let me fix that now. I screwed that up. Uh, let's see. And you got my, my microphone here. It looks looks nice on video. It looks like, like it's serious. I just need something behind me to make it look interesting because this is really bad. Uh, let's see. That's me rambling for 10 minutes. Let me get into the meat of my post. I'm going to switch over to, doing, to, to recording on Mondays because uh, it kind of gets in the way of the weekend. I was recording on Saturdays because I do another podcast, a uh, financial podcast, and it was easier to kind of compile my information and do it on Saturday because the market's closed on Friday, so I can uh, put all my my stuff together and then create that podcast on Saturday, uh, usually afternoon, sometimes evening. Um, but now I think I'm going to just do it on Mondays. It's easier for me at least. And now I think it's more entertaining for you. Uh, back into the posts from the week. Let's get rid of Ollie. There was one that I did not post, um, but it, I read about it over the weekend. And this is um, the... Everybody was talking about it, obviously, over the weekend. And I think it was on Friday. The Justice Department filed suit against the state of Georgia over the new voting law. And when you listen to uh, Assistant AG Kristen Clark, one of the first things she says in her opening paragraphs, she cites the, uh, as if it's some kind of crime for the Georgia Senate to pass a bill that was three pages long, which I think it was only two pages, but anyway. And that, the way she puts it, it expanded to over 90 pages days later. That makes it sound like uh, something drastic happened in like, three days, which is not the case. It was uh, about 17 days. It went from March 8th 
to March 25th when the thing was signed and voted on, or voted on and signed. Uh, regardless, this is uh, Kristen Clark. Our complaint today alleges that several provisions of SB 202 were passed with a discriminatory purpose in violation of the Voting Rights Act. The Georgia legislature passed SB 202 through a rushed process that departed from normal practice and procedure. The version of the bill that passed the state Senate on March 8th was three pages long. Days later, the bill ballooned into over 90 pages in the House. The House held less than two hours of floor debate on the newly inflated SB 202 before Governor Kemp signed it into law the same day. So now it's a crime um, to have a bill of one size, debate it, amendments, and have it of another size uh, when it's finally voted on and passed on to the executive. What she's not telling you is that, okay, the Senate portion, the Senate bill that was passed was, I think it was two pages, the one that I saw. And um, after that was voted on and passed, there was a totally different version that was presented in the House of Representatives in Georgia. It wasn't like they took the Senate bill and just added all this stuff. There were all these other things that they were already working on. So they they passed a different version. They in the in the house uh they debated they made amendments and then they finally passed the final bill which was i think 95 pages and yes it was passed on march 25th and kemp did sign it on the 25th here's governor kemp disputing what our assistant ag they didn't mention the 50 election bills that were introduced that were consolidated into the final version, or at least parts of them were. They didn't mention that some of the recommendations from the bill came from the County Commissioners Association of Georgia, which represents Republican counties and Democratic counties. Several other lawsuits have already been filed against the state over SB2. So that's from uh, Channel 11 here in the Atlanta, Georgia area. What a bunch of crap all of this was. This is the text of the uh, not the legislation from the attorney general. So again, what you know, it's a big deal. Three pages to over ninety pages. What's not mentioned here is what the federal government is trying to pass in their voting rights bill, which is called the For the People Act. Now you know when it's called For the People, it is not for the people. It's for the politicians. Period. End of story. I'm sure it's happened before uh, the Patriot Act, but ever since the Patriot Act was introduced and passed, every single bill that seems to come out of Congress, whatever it's called, it means the exact opposite. It is not, I mean, the Patriot Act was the least patriotic bill ever signed into law. And, you know, personally, I voted for George W., I liked him. Personally, I liked George W. But the Patriot Act and the creation of the TSA, the Department of Homeland Security, it was the least American thing 
the least patriotic law signed. It just gave sweeping powers to the executive to do all kinds of crap to the people. And we're still living with that legacy now, over two decades later. Or over two decades? No, almost two decades later. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a little bit, I'm a little bit ahead of my time in the months. Anyway, so the federal government, uh, they want to push through their stupid for the people act which will make sweeping changes to voting laws across the country for federal elections. They don't have the power to change things for state elections, but the U.S. Constitution gives them the power to regulate federal elections. But how big is the For the People Act? You think 90 pages was big? This thing is 888 pages. 888. And much of it has nothing to do with voting. There's an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution by, what's this guy's name? Jamie, Jamie Dupree. And in there, he, he highlights this 888-page bill. And aside from things in here about um, the election, I'm scanning through this thing trying to find I should have highlighted what it was but I can't remember <laughs> I didn't do it I I do zero zero show prep you know I, I've blogged during the week and so I've got all these tabs open with all this crap from my blog um, but I should have highlighted this one because it was in here here the, the table of contents alone for the act out of the, the federal bill was 14 pages and it includes uh, things like ethics, conflict of interest provisions for the U.S. Supreme Court, Congress, and the executive branch. The package also has lobbying disclosure requirements, campaign fundraising changes, new rules on congressional redistricting, and much more. So the, if the Justice Department's going to come out against the state of Georgia, and I'm sure they're going to file suit against the uh, state of Texas and whoever else change voting laws. I think Florida did the same thing. They need to go after Congress. 888 pages. This thing was already in the works. Uh, what year was that? 2019, it says here. And I saw something earlier about 2017. But anyway, 2019, much of this bill was sitting and waiting in the wings. And they were just waiting for the right moment to spring this thing. And it's full of all kinds of crap that have nothing to do with voting. So they're all being disingenuous pricks when they talk about the length of the bill and you know what uh, what Georgia really wants to do with voting. And if you if you look at it, the the provisions in the voting bill, the voting law in Georgia, if you look at it with an objective eye, there is nothing in there that is racist. There is nothing in there that restricts voting. It expands voting. It gives extra weekend days. You know, they're talking about the, the big deals they make about uh, not being able to give people water in line. First of all, it's not true. You can give somebody water in line. You just have to be 150 feet away from the entrance of the polling place. And honestly, 
you can't bring your own bottle of water or you cannot survive long enough. Even, let's say even the, if the wait is two hours long, you can't survive for a couple of hours without drinking some water for crying out loud. You know, if you're voting in the morning, go have a breakfast, drink some water, then go vote. You know, and then the, the other thing they made a big deal out, out of are the drop boxes. Drop boxes didn't even exist. They weren't part of the voting law prior to COVID. So they brought those out as a response to COVID so people could go drop off their ballots and not have to actually talk to somebody in person. You know, brush up against somebody. So when the temporary provisions for COVID voting expired, the drop boxes would have just gone away. So they could have just let that expire and just not even pass a law with drop boxes in it. So they made it permanent. So now there will be drop boxes for voting permanently. They just have to be secure now. They're not going to just be on every street corner like a mailbox um, that'll, that'll be available 24 hours a day without any kind of security. They'll be inside of a building uh, where the early voting takes place. So that way they can be monitored, they can be watched, they can have a camera on them if necessary. Uh, you know, it's just a little matter of security. Which, what is what it's racist about that? If you can go drop off your ballot at a Dropbox location, and granted, they, they've reduced the number of them because you don't need them, you don't need that many if we're not um, dealing with these stupid uh, lockdown provisions. Okay, let's see. There was some COVID stuff in the news that I covered. What did I do with it? I'm going to save that draft. Maybe I'll post that one later. Close that tab. Okay. So I, my headline was, Researcher discovers scientists aren't really interested in the science. And the short of the story is that uh, the researcher... Um, how did I put it? I said, researcher meets data, researcher publishes paper examining data, researcher gets attacked by scientists, researcher gets dragged through the mud and has to aggressively protect their reputation. And finally, the researcher becomes jaded and cynical regarding the real motivations of her peers. Uh, you know, so so what happens here is that um, the scientist was um, publishing some information that was just based on data. And the, the findings weren't convenient to the scientific community that was covering the topic that she was um, studying. And they put enormous pressure on her um, to kind of recant um, everything that she found. What the hell did I say here? Uh, this is what happens when you have zero show prep. So in her story, it's on sci uh, sciencedirect.com. I shouldn't touch my face while on camera, should I? A naive researcher published the scientific article in a respectable journal. She thought her article was straightforward and defensible. It used only publicly available data, and her findings were consistent with much of the literature on the topic. 
Her co-authors included two distinguished statisticians. To her surprise, her publication was met with unusual attacks from some unexpected sources within the research community. These attacks were by and large not pursued through normal channels of scientific discussion. Her research became the target of an aggressive campaign that included insults, errors, misinformation, social media posts, behind-the-scenes gossip and maneuvers, and complaints to her employer. So the moral to me of the story is that, quote-unquote, the science you know, that everybody wants to follow, it can't be trusted because it's delivered by human beings, human scientists with their own agendas. People need to look critically at the information that's being pushed and use their common sense as to whether or not things make sense. And that transitions to, you know, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. When they first started giving information, and if you you get away from the emotion uh, and the fear of some new virus, and you look at what they were reporting, um, which was um, consistent across all reporting uh, outlets is that largely the people that were getting severely ill and dying were people who are over the age of 65 and I think the heavy concentration of them is over 75 and 80 and that people younger than that that were being affected that were having really bad cases of COVID and dying uh, were people with what it's like the favorite word of 2020 2021 comorbidities people who had diabetes, uh, people who suffered from inflammatory diseases because it seems that their immune system was already in overdrive uh, trying to compensate for the other issues that they already had. And when they contracted SARS-CoV-2 and developed the illness now known as COVID-19, their immune system really went into overdrive and ended up killing them. So when you look at it, and you look at that at those facts that, um, first of all, a hundred percent of the people do not get infected with COVID nineteen. Some people just do not get infected. Then, of the eighty five percent that do, at least these were the numbers. I don't know what they are right now, but throughout almost this entire pandemic. of those who were infected either were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms, nothing that was fatal or life-threatening. That other 15%, um, some of them got seriously ill where it was a really bad flu, but not they didn't have to be hospitalized. I think it was something like uh, more than half of that. And then there was a smaller percentage that was hospitalized. They were hospitalized and they recovered. And then the tiny percentage, the small percentage that were hospitalized and died. Now, those are the facts of the pandemic. And so people should be able to judge for themselves. Am I at high risk? Am I old? Young people you know, while, yeah, now the stories are coming out, oh, the variant, the Delta variant's killing all the young people, sending them to the hospitals. But they're not really publishing the numbers on any of this stuff right now. They're just talking about it. But primarily, people that are at low risk didn't really have to do anything. We could have gone along with our lives as normal. 
But the science, the science, you can't, you can't trust it. You were not allowed to, to take the facts out and assess your own risk and then act accordingly. No. You had to, you had to have people not, not just tell you what to do, but they came out and they shut everything down. This is why you cannot trust human scientists. They can, you know, they may be smarter than some of us, uh, you know. They may know more about, you know, the transmission of diseases, sure. But give us the facts. Get, tell us what you know. And then let us make our own decisions. And I think that's also where Trump got played. He got played badly by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. He trusted in them uh, to provide accurate information. And Fauci, it turns out, was lying from the beginning. Lying for who knows what reason. I mean, you know, people say, you know, that the NIH has a vested interest in Moderna. And that Fauci is uh, irrevocably or irrevocably tied to the pharmaceutical industry. Whatever, whatever his reasons are, he he lied. He lied about so many things. Uh, you know, the masking in particular. He seemed to be lying about uh, hydroxychloroquine. Seemed to be lying about ivermectin. But. You take, you know, he lied specifically about masks. At least that one we can see for sure. And he even came out and admitted that he lied because he didn't want the, uh, according to him, he didn't want the supply of masks to not be available to frontline workers, nurses, doctors, whatever. So once you get a guy like that out there lying, okay, instead of just telling adults in America, in the United States of America, telling adults, like, hey, I mean, of course, adults are stupid anyway. You know, they went out and bought tons of toilet paper because they thought they weren't going to be able to wipe their own asses. Regardless, you tell, his job is to tell us the truth. Whatever he knows, he's supposed to tell the truth and advise, you know, there he's supposed to advise the president of the United States. He's saying don't wear a mask. It's not going to do anything for you, which it turns out anyway, multiple studies show that it may not be all that effective at preventing infection. So once they lie about something so small, you now have to discount everything else these people say. You can't trust anything that comes out of their mouths. You have to look at what's the agenda behind what they're talking about. And they may still utter some facts. But you have to be able to pull those facts out yourself and make a determination for yourself. And you, you know that this is happening not just in, in COVID. And you can see from the frontline care doctors, COVID care doctors, that are heavily pushing ivermectin and that uh, are adamant that in their clinical experience that this drug is effective, not just as a treatment but also as a preventive measure. You can see what they're going for uh, with following the science. And that um, it doesn't just apply to COVID. It also apply, applies to climate change. And I just finished the book uh, written by a former 
Obama administration uh, official, and of course I didn't save that either, so I don't, I can't remember the name of the book offhand. Um, but in there he he talks about climate science. I'm gonna I'll blog post that book this week. But he talks about how the media screws this all up and how they just follow a set narrative that is not the truth. Okay, end of that rant. The Chicago Tribune. That's where I'm from. I was born in Chicago. I'm now living in the lovely state of Georgia in the north uh, eastern suburbs of Atlanta. Um, I still read the Chicago Tribune every day. And they were recently purchased by a uh, by Alden Capital. I think there was some hedge fund that uh, owns other newspapers, well known for purging these papers after they buy them. So recently, over the last week, the Chicago Tribune saw a mass buyout of prominent columnists and reporters. I think it was something like 40 of them accepted buyouts. Prominent uh, voices like John Cass, Eric Zorn, Mary Schmidt, Darlene Glanton. Everybody except uh, Rex Hupke. I think that's how you pronounce his name, Hupke. That guy, I don't read him because he's just such a boob. But, I mean, columnists that I read that um, were good columnists. I mean, John Cass was probably the last of the conservative columnists at the Tribune. Even the editorial board, I don't think, is as conservative as, as Cass was. And Cass really wasn't all that conservative, necessarily. Um, he, to me, was classic. Chicago classic Illinois, where um, we're sort of moderates. You know, we like people to leave us alone. You know, we like we like to leave people alone and just go about our lives. You know, but he was heavily into the politics of Chicago, and so now he's just posting on his own on his own website, JohnCastNews.com, which um, I, I will continue reading because his now that he's. He's not constrained by the editors at the Tribune. He can open up a little bit more, which which he really did in his last column about Lori Lightfoot. He really let it let it fly, which was which was good because there were things that I think he covered there that he wasn't able to quite say while he was a columnist in, in the Tribune. Um, but the Tribune, okay, they they get rid of forty columnists. And then what did they do? They sent me an invoice. They sent me an invoice where they uh, raised my subscription rate. Uh, it's not granted the subscription anyway is cheap, but it went from a buck. Uh, it was like a a buck a month I was paying to seven dollars, or almost eight bucks. I was like, Wait, you got a lot of nerve. <laughs> you get rid of everybody that I read and then and then you raise my rate. Now, um I called them up and you know this is what I always do is I'll, I'll call them up and I'll I'll say I'm going to cancel cuz you raise my rate and then they always drop it back down. So now again I I continue my Tribune subscription but for it's, it's for a dollar a month through the end of the year. So, you know, this happens every 6 months I got to call them back. 
Um, but it's there, you know, with the Tribune, what happened over the years, which is what happened with a lot of other big city newspapers that are not the New York Times or Washington Post, is that they use syndicated information, syndicated stories. So they pulled too, too many stories from the Associated Press, from the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, even the LA Times. And, you know, for national news, um, things that weren't in Chicago. So, you know, some of that stuff, it was just, the stories weren't good because they were all very slanted. Um, you know, I would still, if, depending on the importance of the news story, I would still read them. Um, but you have to really read those critically to take out the bias that's in there so, so you can get to the facts of what the story is. But their local reporting, the Chicago Tribune's local reporting was always on point. And it, it may have also had a little bit of a slant to it, but, I mean, it's Chicago. But they, they, they covered it, and they covered Chicago very well. They covered a lot, of the, a lot of the corruption in the state. So now with all these columnists and reporters gone, who knows how that's going to be. I, I hope their local reporting continues, because I still read the paper every day. But the, the Atlanta Journal, I read the Atlanta Journal. That is a really bad paper. Even locally, um, it's ugly to look at. And, you know, they do the same thing that the Tribune did with syndicated stories. Uh, but the rest of it, you know, they, they do a lot of local coverage. It's, it's different here in that the county structure has more importance than city, than, than city structures. In Chicago, we don't really talk about the counties that much. I mean, Cook County is one of the, is one of the largest counties in the country, population-wise. And Cook County is where Chicago was, and it was also where I was living in one of the northern suburbs. But we didn't really talk about county government much at all. You know, it's there, and, you know, you got the election for county board president and stuff, but we didn't really talk about it that much. It was more about the mayor of Chicago or where I used to live. I used to live in uh, a suburb called Glenview. Even there, I mean, we talked about the Glenview Police Department uh, you know, the Glenview government there, um, which is different here. So while, while they do have city structures here, as well as the county, the county seems to take precedent over everything. And the way that they report the news, um, it's just kind of like, I don't know, maybe I just can't get into the rhythm of it yet, but it seems so scattershot. And the editorial page of the Atlanta Journal is, I mean, they're, they're just, they're, they're not uh, middle of the road, to put it that way. And they're, they're expensive, then they keep bugging me. So I do the same thing with them, I'll cancel it, and then I will subscribe back and I'll get it for like 99 cents for the next month. But th what they wanted to do is they want to go from charging me 99 cents for a month to charging me like three bucks a week. You know, I'm not paying that much for this rag. It's it's terrible. You know, we'll see how long I continue. I can continue my uh, cancellation and restarting of uh, my subscription. Hold on, I just had to burp. So is is this compelling on video? I can't imagine this is compelling on video at all. This 41 minutes of this. Anyway. <laughs> I shouldn't be uh, down talking my own my own content. Uh, I went hiking. I had this this beautiful picture of this 
crazy woman here. <clears throat> um, this is at Settles Bridge. Uh, I guess it's, it's, I guess it's a national park. I don't know. It was in the, this is a, it was a federal park. It wasn't a state park. And I just thought this picture was kind of funny. I was searching for, for places to hike, you know, um, you know, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour from my house. Cause I was going to go hiking on Friday. So I just wanted to play someplace close by. Uh, so I discovered this park and this, got yeah, this cool old bridge that's been closed off. And so the framework of it's still standing. And it's just it's just such a weird picture of this woman who is in full uh uh I don't know what you would call that. Uh, I'm I'm guessing she's Muslim. She's got a full dress on sort of with a headscarf. And then in the background you got these three boys which are, you know, climbing on this bridge which they're not supposed to be on. But it's just kind of a juxtaposition of cultures and people and the creepiest part is her hand i don't know just look at this woman's hand it's it's it looks like a skeleton i don't know it's just it was a freaky picture i posted it and i did go hiking there with my dog on friday and that was a good time you can see that on on, uh, instagram i got a bunch of photos uh well you know what you can see it on his his is where i have all the photos uh yes i do have an instagram account for my dog uh, just for entertainment purposes, <clears throat> it's called, uh, his handle is at Gluteus Maximus. His name is Godfrey. Uh, and I think there's some pictures on mine. My my Instagram is at Kevin Bay. Moving on. A study at the Cleveland Clinic finds no need for vaccine in those previously infected with SARS-CoV-2. Uh <clears throat> so this is, uh, again, another one of the debates raging on, and, and common sense should tell you, if you've been infected with an illness, a virus, and you recover from it, your body has produced antibodies to fight off the infection. This has been the truth about the human body since um, antibodies were discovered. So you, you you get you contract SARS-CoV-2, you come down with COVID-19, you recover, and now you have your body now has the ability to recognize this virus and the variants of the virus because uh, you know the variants are still over 99.9% uh, the same as the original virus. So your body now has the ability to fight that off. So why would you get vaccinated? You've already recovered. Why would you inject yourself with some foreign medication that you don't need? Like I, I've, I had chicken pox. I had, I, I got the disease. I didn't get, uh, I wasn't vaccinated for it as a child. So I received, I got chicken pox as an adult when my son got chicken pox. So I came down with that. So now I am immune to chicken pox. I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, thank goodness I didn't have a really severe case as an adult, but whatever. So what makes SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 different than the history of other infections. You know, 
none of it makes any sense, but at least there are um, studies that are coming out that's showing that you don't need to do what they are all being, uh, what they're all pushing us to do. Politics seems to be infecting reporting of adverse reactions from COVID-19, so it seems that uh, politics just covers everything now. And um, it's pos- uh, politically desirable to push COVID-19 vaccines, if you haven't noticed. I don't watch TV news. I just read my news. And the push is so strong that it's just incredible. If you haven't noticed the push to get vaccinated, you haven't been paying attention. So let's see. In this story from the Wall Street Journal, um, there were four very serious adverse events following um, the vaccination. So according to data taken directly from the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, uh, you got thrombocytopenia, otherwise known as low platelets, non-infectious myocarditis, which has been in the news, you know, it's heart inflammation, Uh, in young people, deep vein thrombosis, and death. There have been thousands of people that have died post-vaccine. And the government, at least the U.S. government, and I believe the the EU and the U.K., they've all been downplaying deaths post-vaccine. And some of the stories I've been reading that in the past, when vaccine studies were done prior to rollout to the population, when deaths were just in the hundreds, vaccine trials were stopped. Now, if you notice, too, uh, with the uh, Johnson & jo- Johnson vaccine, back, back when there were six reports of blood clotting, uh, six reports of blood clotting over like six or seven million doses. They did almost an immediate halt. They didn't pick it pick it back up for for a couple of weeks, and you know then they started blaming that on the uh, cause for vaccine hesitancy. But the CDA and the FDA they seem to be ignoring all the data around this and covering it up. Or let's say not covering it up, but just ignoring it. It doesn't get played up in the news. The news media, is they're totally worthless now. So in the Wall Street Journal, they write, uh, the implication is that the risks of a COVID-19 vaccine may outweigh the benefits for certain low-risk populations, such as children, young adults, and people who've recovered from COVID-19. This is especially true in regions with low levels of community spread, since the likelihood of illness depends on exposure risk. And while you would never know it from listening to the public health officials, not a single published study has demonstrated that patients with prior infection benefit from COVID-19 vaccination. That this isn't readily acknowledged by the CDC or or Anthony Fauci is an indication of how deeply entangled pandemic politics is in science. So, you know, this isn't a Wall Street Journal op-ed. It's a a miracle it gets published. That's probably the only place right now where that's going to get published. The digital dollar, this is dangerous. Oh, that figures. I'll let that play out. Uh, Why don't I hear that back? Anyway, (laughs) Um, the U.S. government seems like they're going to come out with a digital dollar. The Federal Reserve might want to fix your wallet by turning it from this into this. 
Though your wallet is still designed for dollar bills, Americans have been using cash to buy things less and less over the years. That's part of why the Fed is considering digitizing the US dollar, giving people money they can access on their phone and bypassing electronic payments what if you don't have a phone? slow and costly for businesses. Some see this as a necessary upgrade to the US financial system, but others worry it could potentially upend commercial banking. There are some very, very difficult questions to answer, but I think we, and we are engaged in, a serious program to understand both the technology and the policy issues. A central bank digital currency, or CBDC, is exactly what it sounds like, a purely digital form of a country's money issued by its central bank that people can use just like cash. Here's the problem. You know, if you wanted to stash some cash away for a rainy day, put it in your home safe, put it in a safe deposit box, stuff it in your mattress, a digital dollar eliminates all of that. Not only that, now look at, look at what, ha what, what has happened over the last two years, your year and a half since the pandemic, with shutting people up online. Now, granted, it's not the government shutting you up. It's YouTube, it's Facebook, it's Twitter. But what is to stop the federal government from shutting off your money spigot once uh, cash is all digital? If they totally eliminate paper money, they then, the government has a choke point on your life. They can prevent you from doing anything. So let's say you're accused of a crime. Whatever the crime is, and they say you're a flight risk. Maybe you are a flight risk. Maybe you're not. But now you won't be able to use that cash to do anything or go anywhere. Because they'll just shut it off. They're saying, okay, we will control what you're allowed to spend and where you're allowed to spend it. So your digital dollars can no, now no longer buy you train ticket, plane ticket, hotels. You know what? We, we think you're spending too much money. Uh, you know, say this has nothing to do with criminal behavior at all. Let's say this has public health implications like COVID. You're spending too much money on fast food. Now your money is only good for produce. Or we think you're eating too much meat. Too much red meat. So now we're going to we're going to limit you. We're going to, you know, we think that you should only be able to, you know, buy uh, x x number of dollars of red meat a week. There's no limit to what the federal government can do to you with a centralized digital dollar. Now, if it's a decentralized digital dollar, and I'm not talking about Bitcoin, I'm talking about a U.S. dollar that is decentralized, that is handed out by the banks, you, you have more control, but still not optimal because you still can't squirrel away some cash somewhere that nobody knows about and have it for an emergency. I don't know where this is going. I don't necessarily like it. Uh, you know, I, and I hear all the arguments about Bitcoin. It's decentralized. No government can control it. 
but again, you know, Bitcoin is not backed by any uh, military. So to me, it's only worth what the government, the big governments of the world say it's worth. The EU, the US, the UK, China, and Russia. If they don't recognize it, if you're not allowed to convert that currency into government fiat currency, it's worthless to you. Yeah, you can still trade it with other people, but once you need to go outside the Bitcoin ecosystem, you know, um, and you need to buy something from, you know, normal, let's, let's put it as normal society, the government won't let you, you know, you could have a billion dollars in Bitcoin, but if they don't let you trade that for U.S. dollars, you won't even be able to buy a candy bar at the store. Okay. Oh, here's that funny video. Uh, this, this is a video tweeted, and now there's some colorful language. It's a black man in the video, so he's allowed to say what he wants to say that the rest of us cannot say. But he's uh, he was being carjacked, and uh, he thwarted the carjacking. And the funniest part is, take a look at this guy's gun. I put my gun down when they pull up. It's the longest magazine you've ever seen in your life in a handgun. Yeah, man, he thought he was gonna jump in my car and pull out. And it's a stick, nigga. Can you even drive a fucking stick? <laughs> that's a fun, that's one of the funniest part too. <laughs> Can you even drive a stick? Uh, and he just he stood there to this Man, guy. The officers on came and got scene. arrested. Anyway, that that part just cracked me up. Let me move on. Okay. <laughs> and it's a stick. Can you even drive a stick? I don't know. That was hilarious to me. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> Wall Street Journal, there's a story uh, about how uh, businesses adapt and change according to the cost of labor. Now, this is well known to anybody who has operated a business. I was on the employer side for over 30 years. And I know firsthand that employees never take any of this stuff into consideration. You know, employees generally think that a business owner is a bottomless pit of money, that, you know, they're they're extremely wealthy because they own a business. At least, it's generalizing. Most employees, I think, these days. They don't understand what it takes to keep a business operating. They don't understand what it takes to make a single payroll. They don't understand that, you know, a business, a business's purpose for existence is to make a profit. It's not to do good out in the world. And that's not to say a business can't do good in the world and that can't be part of the business. But if the business itself doesn't make money, it doesn't exist to do anything. So that is the first and foremost purpose of a business, to make money. And it doesn't matter what the business does. It doesn't matter if you're selling candy it doesn't matter if you're selling books it doesn't matter if you're selling paper to print receipts on it doesn't matter if you're selling post-it notes 
the purpose is to sell post-it notes and make enough money to continue going to the next day. And, you know, in case of these large, large corporations, their purpose is to uh, maximize returns to shareholders. It's just the fact of life with a business. So in California, they found, according to the Wall Street Journal, that raising the minimum wage in California didn't significantly affect the number of hours worked per store. But, excuse me, what did change, as the company apparently tried to keep its labor costs down, it changed who worked and the hours. As the, as the minimum wage increases by $1, according to the authors of a study, the number of workers scheduled to work per week increases by 27.7%, and the hours assigned to each worker decrease by 20.8%. For the average employee earning $11 an hour, losing that much time on the clock would translate to a wage reduction of 13.6%. One way this can create savings for the company, however, is that workers generally need 20 hours a week to qualify retirement plans and 30 hours a week for health care. The authors of the study calculate that for an average California store, when increasing the minimum wage by a buck, the percentage of workers with weekly hours longer than 20 and 30 decreases by 23% and 14.9% respectively. So the revelation here is that a business that sees an increase in the cost of labor will find ways to decrease that cost of labor in order to maintain profit. They will either do that or they have to raise prices. That's just the way it goes. It's, there's no free lunch. And if you are a follower of Walter Williams, who um, passed away last year, you would know that the minimum wage, the creation of the minimum wage, is racist. You want systemic racism? It's the minimum wage. Uh, uh from Walter E. Williams, Professor Walter E. Williams. It's on his web it's on his website, WalterEWilliams.com slash minimum dash wage dash and dash discrimination. I've got it linked on my website. Uh, quote from there is our nation's first minimum wage law, the Davis Bacon Act of nineteen thirty one, had racist motivation. During its legislative debate, its congressional supporters made such statements as quote that contractor has cheap colored labor that he transports and he puts them in cabins, and it is labor of that sort that is in competition with white labor throughout the country, end quote. During hearings, American Federation of Labor President William Green complained, quote, colored labor is being sought to demoralize wage rates, end quote. So you want systemic racism, you don't have to look very far. All you have to do is look for the policies that the Democrats and socialists, the Democratic socialists, are pushing forward. $15 minimum wage. There's nothing more racist than a $15 minimum wage, especially when you're talking about the statistics of a higher unemployment among black people, higher unemployment among uh, Latino people, higher unemployment among uh, immigrants that are coming in. A higher minimum wage prices those people with few skills out of the market. There's just it's just common sense. A lot of people just think labor unions are their godsends. Well, not for everybody. Let me give you one example. And that example is really talked about in a forthcoming book of mine. It's called Race and Economics. It'll be out towards the it's end of March or something like that, maybe April. 
And in one of the chapters, I talk about the minimum wage. And I talk about a super minimum wage called the Davis-Bacon Act of 1931. And here's what the Davis-Bacon Act does. And it turns out to be very costly. From the professor It requires himself. that workers receive what's called the prevailing wage. On all federally funded and federally assisted construction projects, and the Department of Labor illegally decides that the prevailing wage is the union wage in the area or higher. Now, if you tell a contractor... You must pay any carpenter you hire $25 an hour. Well, what is the effect of that? Well, it makes a carpenter who has skills that are only worth, say, $12 an hour, it makes him unemployable. That is, the Davis-Bacon Act or any kind of minimum wage discriminates against the employment of low-skilled people. And so, of course, unions give a lot of support for the Davis-Bacon Act. But if you go to the congressional record, you see some of the history of it. March 31st, 1931, page 6513. You can read what was argued by congressmen in support of the Davis-Bacon Act. One congressman said, it's Congressman Allgood, see that contractor over there. He brings cheap colored labor up from the South and puts them in cabins and it is labor of that kind that's competing with white men around America. It's much more forceful. And you find similar directly. statements in support of the Davis-Bacon Act by other congressmen. The thing is, the Davis-Bacon Act was written to exclude non-union laborers from construction projects. And today, the Davis-Bacon Act is still on the books, supported tooth and nail by labor unions in general. So that tells you everything you need to know about systemic racism and what people are really willing to look at when they're talking about it. Uh, on to 2020 elections, it was found out, um, I found out a while ago, um, and I blogged about it before, uh, that the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative interfered in our elections in 2020. They sent out uh, hundreds of millions of dollars across the country to uh, supposedly to shore up infrastructure, voting infrastructure during the pandemic. Uh, but Just the News reports that uh, the group poured millions of dollars into multiple key Wisconsin Democratic strongholds in the months leading up to last year's presidential race ostensibly in an effort to shore up voting systems and in, in, in infrastructure amid the pandemic, the organization was ultimately funded with more than a third of a billion dollars by Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. That money was funneled to additional election funding efforts across the country. They claim the following, uh, following the infusion of the cash into Green Bay, the mayor's office and chief of staff began to take over election functions. And it's not that something... And that is not something under the state statutes that they have authority to do. Because under Wisconsin law, municipal clerks, the county clerk, and Wisconsin elections commissions are the individuals charged with running the elections. So we're always concerned about money and politics. And mainly it's always, uh, it's been centered around advertising. That if a group has advocated for a candidate that if there's all this flood of advertising coming out, 
that somehow it's evil. At least that's in your face. Nobody knew about this Chan Zuckerberg initiative, I don't think. It wasn't widely known at all until after the election. I didn't find out about it until after the fact. It's like, what the hell are they doing providing money to local governments to handle the election? That's that's a, that's a taxpayer... It has to be only a taxpayer-funded initiative, elections. That cannot come from outside private businesses that have an agenda. You know, it's even more clear now with Facebook shutting everybody up when it comes to debate, either for the election, you know, now they, now we know they, they have a vested interest in that election because they interfered with it. And moving to Joe, I gotta stop smacking, smacking. It's something I do unconsciously, but I hear it now that I have to have headphones on when I podcast, I hear this all the time and I, I can't stop myself. Part of it is too, is I think the micro the microphone picks up every, you know, every little bit, even uh, like dry mouth. <laughs> That's gotta be really disturbing, triggering to some people to hear that. We had, we had Creepy Joe come out with his whispering. People are waiting for relief. I got them $1.9 trillion relief so far. They're going to be getting checks in the mail that are consequential this week for child care. A lot has been happened already. I don't think it has anything to do with his dementia. He's just Number a creep. Two, I'm going to fight like it's a weird dude. To get them the rest of what I think has to be done. I'm going to be going around the country spending time making the case to the American people that this just isn't about showing an identification that this is who I am when I vote. This isn't just about whether or not, excuse me, you can provide water for someone standing in line while they're waiting to vote. This is such bullshit. This is about who gets to judge whether your vote counted after it's been cast. Think about it. Don't dismiss it at all. Just remind them, I wrote the bill. Why would I not be Joe forward? wrote the bill. Employers can't find workers. I hey, said, yeah. You know, pay them more. At the beginning, yeah, pay them more. $1.9 trillion relief so far. $1.9 trillion in relief. The IRS still has not processed my tax return. I filed in March. I just read a story where they just finished the backlog from 2019. I'm, you know, they, I've, I've changed my entire employment and income stream. So, um, the last two years, I've had a kind of an upheaval in, in my taxes. Where before, you know, I sort of planned things out. Where, you know, I, I usually had to pay some on April 14th. You know, because I would rather me have the money than the government has the money. But in the change of my employment and the change in what I'm doing, you know, my income isn't the same. So I have no, you know, I had no idea what kind of tax consequences uh, I'm going to have from the way I currently have my life structured. So I, I'm supposed to be getting a refund. I Now, state of Illinois gave me my refund, which they're broke already. Somehow they paid me. The federal government, though, the federal government's still holding on to my money. You know, you check the stupid website and it says that they received it and it's processing, but nothing's happening. And you can't call anybody. It's all automated. Nobody answers the freaking phone. I contacted my uh, now Georgia representative 
they reached out to the IRS and the IRS came back and just told them I'm part of the backlog. So while, you know, our illustrious president uh, is whispering how much money he's sending to people, send me mine, process my fucking return, send me my cash. Now, I'm, I'm supposed to get plus interest, but still, I, I would rather have the money in my pocket so there's stuff that I can do with it. And I think, is this the last story? Yes, this is the last story. And I was going to name it, I was going to name the podcast episode President Kamala Joe. Not particularly clever, but whatever, it was in my head. So I may still change it to that. Right now it's it's called uh, Self-Identification Has Finally Jumped the Shark, which is kind of too long. So I will probably rename it to that. But anyway, I'm, I'm sure everybody's seen this by now, where uh, President Biden was delivering um, remarks about whatever the hell he was talking about. I don't know, because I, I don't watch his speeches. You know, he doesn't say anything of consequence, and nobody asks him any questions of consequence, so there's not really much point in watching them. You know, I, I will read them later if there's text of it, or if it's something important that everybody's making a big deal out of, I'll go watch. But this one's just takes the cake. working. I've got to get a helicopter. Mr. Will you travel to Florida, sir? Can we ask you about Florida, what you've learned? Oh, yes. Joe, you forgot something. Yes, thank you, my president. I've spoken with... She's so smug. Coincidentally, the mayor... I told him. ...of Miami-Dade was in my office yesterday. And I talked to her today. Not about that, obviously. And so I had a long discussion with her today. I've also spoken with, we've been in contact with the congresswoman, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who has that district. We anyway, I, what he says is not important. The, the fact is, is that, and it's not just Kamala reminding him, what's wrong with his staff? He had a book in front of him about what he's supposed to talk about. Uh, and he refers to it all the time. Why didn't they put that in there? Joe. Don't forget to talk about the Miami building collapse. You know, I think it's it's less really about Kamala Harris jumping in and saying, hey, Joe, you forgot something. And I think it's less about his dementia. I think it's more that his staff seems to be sabotaging him a lot. A lot. All right. I think I've run out of topics. I still haven't found a, a good transition to end an episode. because I think it's mainly because I'm talking to myself but <laughs> anyway so if you're, if you're watching this on youtube congratulations it's an hour and 12 minutes if you're listening to this on the podcast congratulations as well i know there's at least 10 of you i don't know if you're listening all the way through but there's at least 10 10 for 10 episodes uh i'm going to mention that this is a podcasting 2.0 compatible podcast that means if you're listening to this podcast on a podcasting 2.0 compatible app you'll have access to transcripts chapters and chapter images again i've said this before i have i've been lazy with chapters i'm i promise i'm going to get to this because uh, chapter images really kind of help when you're talking about a specific thing and you can provide that photo of what it is you're talking about. It kind of adds a new dimension to what you're doing or to what to what people are listening to. And if you're using a podcasting 2.0 compatible app, um, <clears throat> what are those? You can go to newpodcastapps.com and download any one of those that, that cover uh, the new podcast uh, 2.0 namespace. Uh, 
Um, you should go there and support them because they are more important to the ecosystem of free speech and podcasting than either Apple, Spotify, Google, Facebook, any of the big players. It's independent podcasting, independent reporting, independent uh, people out there telling you what's exactly happening in different parts of the world um, that will deliver you more truth than you're going to get from legacy media. So um, go go to podcastindex.org, support them, um, and um, get you know one of the new apps because the apps are fantastic. If you have any questions or comments, put them on YouTube there. You know, I think I get there's a chat there, but nobody's nobody's watching or listening to that thing right now. Hopefully, people will transition to that. I, I don't know when I'm going to do this live. If I'm going to have a set time for that. I have to figure that out. But um, questions or comments, send me an email at mail, M-A-I-L, at kevinbay.com. Go to my website, kevinbay.com. My name is spelled K-E-V-I-N. Last name is B as in boy, A-E. So kevinbay.com. And let me know what you think. Um, also, you can donate to this podcast. There's a donate button on my website, um, if you feel like sending me a couple of dollars, I would appreciate it. I have a, I have a merch store, kevinbay.com slash merch. And right now they're in there. You've just got a couple of t-shirts that are based on the on Chicago and the place where I grew up. And I've got a couple of designs from the pandemic where you can buy t-shirts, masks. If you feel like wearing a mask, wear one of mine. Anyway, that is, anyway, that is it. For this episode number 10 hopefully I make it at number 11 on next Monday and I will talk to you then where did, where did my cursor go that was kind of disturbing the way that kicked in very loud anyway that's it maybe I'll find something more entertaining back here we'll see Talk to you next week, because that's all I got. Still not really sold on this. <laughs>